Well, good morning, Elevation. It's good to be with you here in this online space. For those of you who may be joining in for the first time, my name is Brandon and I'm the lead pastor here in Waterloo. This morning, for the second time in a year and a half, our Elevation community is gathering over two services, one in person and one online. Now, eventually this won't be news anymore, but it is news for us now. Last Sunday morning, a small number of people from our community gathered at 22 Willow, and it was the first time we'd done so in quite a long time. And after the service, Melissa and I went home and we hopped on our neighbor's call, and we were there on that call with people who had both attended in person and who had joined the online service that morning, and it was a great way to connect. A reminder that even though we're gathering in different spaces at this time, there's still important and significant ways for us to stay connected as a community. These are unusual times. It goes without saying. Last week we talked about the importance of having strength and courage, and this morning we're going to look at a couple of other themes, vision and hope, two things that we need now more than ever. This past week, I read an article about Donald Trump. It was kind of weird, actually. I mean, there was a season that we went through where every article, every headline seemed to be about Donald Trump. And it's been a long time since I've actually read something about him. There's a new book coming out. It's called Peril. And it's about the last days of Trump's office as he was handing it over to Biden and uh, interviews with observers and whatnot. Now, as I was thinking about it, I was like, something inside me tells me that he would maybe have a different turn of events or he would have a different version of the stories or whatever. There's something about having that first person view. And that's what we get this morning in our reading from Ezekiel chapter 37. This is a first person view. But if we want to understand who Ezekiel is in the context that he's uh, writing this book in, we need to go all the way back to the beginning, chapter one and verse one. In my 30th year, in the fourth month on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Kebar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Last week we acknowledged that we are living through a collective experience that is bound to have long lasting effects. We don't know what the long term effects of isolation will be or of the divisiveness of this season or of our anxiety. What will the long term effects of people not gathering together as a church for this long be? Ezekiel's generation, well, they were in a similar situation. The lives of people had been upended, but not by an invisible virus, but by a very visible Babylonian army. As a way of breaking the spirits of conquered people, King Nebuchadnezzar ordered his troops to drive thousands of Jewish people out of their homeland, and this included Ezekiel. Now, exile isn't something that we talk about a whole lot these days, uh, but there's an excerpt from the Italian author Dante Alighieri, his uh, 14th century writing, The Divine Comedy. He actually spent a couple of years in exile himself, and he writes this in his poetic way about exile. You will leave everything you love most. This is the arrow that the bow of exile shoots first. You will know how salty another bread tastes and how hard it is to ascend and descend another's stairs. So he writes about his experience, about how difficult it is to be in a place that is not your own. Now, while it's estimated that only about 25% of the people uh, were actually exiled, a high percentage of these were court officials, members of the priesthood, skilled craftsmen, and other wealthier citizens. You see, the intention was to break the spirit of the nation by removing their best and brightest, utilizing their skills for the benefit of the conquerors. 
There's a famous psalm, Psalm 137, that begins, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors sang songs, asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Well, what about you? Have you felt something like that over the course of these 18 months? Like you've somehow lost the will to sing, to be happy, to be normal. Maybe you've gathered with friends on a patio. Maybe you've had family over to your house for a meal and you feel like you're doing something wrong. That's how deeply this season is affecting us. The Psalm ends with a scene of people rejoicing over the murder of Babylonian infants. A reminder how if we're not careful, our own deep losses can end up turning us against those that we hold responsible for our pain, returning violence for violence. So it was a despairing time, and the exiles wondered if life would ever go back to normal. Now, Ezekiel was in his 30th year when he first received a vision from God, the age that, as a member of the priesthood, he would have finally been allowed to fulfill his duties. Something I've been doing in the evenings and weekends lately has been, I've been transferring old like VHS tapes and old camcorder tapes into a digital format. And as I was doing this, I came across uh, one scene uh, that actually from my stage of life when I was Ezekiel's age. Uh, basically it was in the summer and Melissa and I, it, it, the, the camera kind of is my brother-in-law Mark in the, in the bushes, he's hiding. And Melissa and I are walking around the, the corner of the house uh, with some friends and we walk around the corner and everyone jumps out and yells, surprise! And it's like, whoa, and I'm like, this is exciting. And I turn to Melissa and I say like, who's the party for? And she says, it's for you. And I said, for what? And she said, your birthday. Well, the reason this caught me off guard was that this was in July. It was a pool party. My birthday's in December. So she threw a surprise birthday party for me six months early. Of course I was surprised, my goodness. Well, there would be no party to mark Ezekiel's milestone. This is a significant event. He would have been entering the priesthood officially, but there was no celebration. He was not able to enter this new stage of his life. Even so, it shouldn't be lost on us that it was precisely during this season of partyless exile that the heavens were opened, to use Ezekiel's phrase. Now, Ezekiel's ministry is very colorful. There are all kinds of great interactions that we read about in these chapters of this book. Uh, there was the time where he was found eating a scroll that was given to him by God. Uh, he was lying on his side for a period of 430 days to prove a point. Uh, we read about him cutting off his hair and his beard with a sword. We read about him cooking his food over human excrement. Actually, that's what God asked him to do, and Ezekiel was like, please no, let me use some cow dung instead. So he cooked his food over cow dung, and there was him refusing to mourn the death of his beloved wife once again to prove a point to God's people. But it was 37 chapters after these things that the hand of the Lord was on me, he says, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. I listened to this interview last week and one of the people talking was uh, talking about an event where they had planned to hike up this mountain with some friends. And when they got to the base of the mountain, this guy comes up to them and says, hey, uh, sorry, the tour guide that you uh, booked isn't available, but I'm gonna be filling in for you. And his friend taps him on the shoulder and he says, 
this is how every horror movie begins. You know, we gotta get out of here. Now, I feel like Ezekiel must have been thinking a similar kind of thing. You know, God brings him into this valley, it's filled with dry bones. He's gotta be thinking, no, this is how every horror movie begins. I've gotta get out of here. So what happens? Well, he tells us that I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He, God asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Well, we all know the answer to that one. Of course, a pile of dry bones can't live. But then, if you factor God into the equation, well, you never can tell. So let's read what happens again. Ezekiel 37, verses 4 to 6. Then God said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to you, to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel did what God commanded him to do and something began to happen. There was a noise, we read, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. As Ezekiel looks on, tendons and flesh appear on the bones, skin covered them, but he observes there was no breath in them. And so we continue the reading in verse 9. Then God said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Again, the fact that Ezekiel saw these visions while in exile is a reminder that God, who always dwells among his people, lives and suffers in all forms of exile with us. In case there was any question, God makes the point of this strange vision crystal clear. Then God said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. The people were hoping for a speedy return home, a hope that certain prophets of the day had fueled, but as time went by, these prophecies showed their true colors. Have you ever got your hopes up for something? Or here's a better question. Uh, how many times during the past 18 months have you got your hopes a little too high? I remember being on a call in April 2020, and I think I will tell this story as long as I live. Uh, we were three weeks into this pandemic, and it was pastors from around North America. And I remember this one particular pastor from California. She makes this comment. She said something about how we needed to be preparing for this to last into the summer. And I remember like chatting with other friends that I knew on the call, and I was like, is she out of her mind? Like the end of the summer, 2020. She was clearly the most prescient person on the call. So yes. We have got our hopes up time and time again. What happens over time when we get our hopes up and then they come crashing down? Well, some of the things that most of us have experienced, fatigue. Do you not feel more tired than you ever have in your life? Complacency, what does it matter? Who really cares? A loss of passion, a loss of drive, and an inward focus. There was a season where we were told, keep the circles tight, stick to the people closest to you. But there was something about that that I think a lot of us feel stuck there sometimes. We're focused on ourselves and, and our world has shrunk a lot. 
We're all human, and many of us have learned a thing or two about just how vulnerable we are to the disruption of the way things are. Christopher Wright, who wrote a commentary on Ezekiel, writes that Ezekiel was ministering to a people who were broken and battered in every conceivable way. There were political, economic, agricultural, social, judicial, religious, personal, relational, and spiritual dimensions to their sin and suffering. And God intended to tackle every aspect of that need. I want to read that last line again, because this is really the crux of this whole message. God intended to tackle every aspect of that need. He knew what his people were going through. He knew all that they had lost. He knew the extent of their suffering, and he wanted to tackle it head on and bring them hope. Ezekiel actually warned the people about setting their hopes too high. His message was neither overly optimistic nor totally pessimistic. It wasn't doom and gloom, but neither was it pie in the sky. Those are the kinds of things that grab headlines. But God's message to his people, it wasn't headline worthy. It was a message of patient hope. Chapters 37, verses 12 to 14. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will, set, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The words of Ezekiel remind me of a, the title of a book by the theologian named Walter Brueggemann. It's called Reality, Grief, Hope. And he talks about the significance of these stages in the prophetic message of the Old Testament. Face the reality of the world you're living in Grieve what you have lost, but hold on to hope that God's promises will be faithful. Maria Popova writes, hope and the wise, effective action that can spring from it is the counterweight to the heavy sense of our own fragility. It is a continual negotiation between optimism and despair, a continual negation of cynicism and naivete. Ezekiel's calling was to keep alive the hope of one day returning home. Now at the tail end of summer, I had some time off and I had a big to-do list. Some of the things on the to-do list were relatively small, fix the broken handle on the toilet, clean out the exhaust vents in the bathrooms, but some of them were bigger projects. And the biggest project of all was to finish our garage. We've lived in our house for 16 years and it has been unfinished the whole time. Part of it was drywalled, but the rest of it was just open frame, and it was just a, becoming a junk land. It didn't really look very nice, and it was, we're not making the best use of the space. So I decided to tackle this, along with the help of my father, who I just want to say, shout out to my dad, 70 years old, rocking it in the garage this summer. It's been amazing. Um, so we set to work on this, and we drywalled, and we painted, and we got all of it, and it just looked fantastic. Uh, and then like a week or two ago, Melissa and I uh, were standing in the front hall, and she kind of looked out in the garage, and she said something like, doesn't the mess drive you crazy after all the work you've done? Because the truth is, it looks like a bomb has gone off in our garage. Like there's just stuff everywhere because we need to move everything from the sides into the middle. And I responded, I was like, well, no, it doesn't, because I know that there's still work to do. It's not like I think, oh, we finished this big project and it looks like garbage. I say, we're in the middle of a project. We've done part A, we're starting part B, and then there's part C. So I kind of look at it and say, no, I, I can accept that things are a mess because I know that it's not finished. In a similar way, this moment that we're in together, 
it's not the final moment. Like many of you, some of the more stressful elements of this past year, they've worn me down. There's no doubt about it. But like my garage, I know that there's still work to be done. I'm willing to do the work. And in time, I'm convinced that the mess will be a thing of the past. Yes, I realize that recovering from a global pandemic is more complicated than finishing a garage. But the point is that having a vision of where things are headed can be helpful. Now, I want to read from the, a passage from the New Testament, Mark chapter 8. The story sets itself up. Jesus and his disciples came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Well, now this is about as good as it gets for us these days, isn't it? When we look to the future, few of us are able to see anything more than trees walking around, like a fuzzy picture of something vaguely familiar. I was reading an email thread this week and someone on the thread had mentioned something about having a particularly hard day and another person responded and said, I get it, COVID fog is a real thing. It's hard to see clearly. It's hard to navigate life right now. Now there's a lot in this story that we don't have time to unpack this morning, but I'd like us to pay attention to the unique manner in which the blind man's vision was restored. This miracle was recorded only in Mark's gospel. For those of you who might be new to this uh, Christian faith, there are four accounts of Jesus' life that we call gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the oldest of these. It is also, so this is the only one of the four that records the story of this particular blind man being healed. And it's also the only time that there is an example of a progressive miracle, which is to say that Jesus kind of started to perform a miracle, it didn't quite work, and then he had to continue on a second time. I was thinking about that and realizing that since Mark is thought to be the earliest written gospel, it's possible that the, the other people who are writing about Jesus' life thought, well, we don't want to include something like that. It kind of gives the impression that maybe Jesus didn't know what he was doing. Um, well, we can actually be pretty sure that that's not what was going on. Jesus did not somehow forget how to restore this man's sight. Already in Mark chapter 2, he had healed a paralyzed man. In chapter 3, he healed a man with a shriveled hand. Jesus knew what he was doing. Now, this is pure speculation. But I wonder if it might have had something to do with Jesus wanting the man to be fully attentive, fully present to what was happening, so that he would do something in his life that the man saw this instant change and was attentive to what Jesus was about to do next. The blind man, most likely already filled with excitement because he could at least see something after the first touch, might have thought that the miracle was over. But we read in Mark 8:25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now I'm gonna ask you to do something this morning, and I promise you it's not gonna be weird or cuckoo, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Of course you don't have to, but I'm gonna ask you to do this. Go with me on this. So your eyes are closed, and I want to imagine that you're maybe on your knees in the dust outside of this village, and Jesus has already kind of spat in your eyes and, and you've seen these kind of fuzzy kind of tree-like creatures walking about. But then Jesus puts his hands on your eyes. So right now I want you to imagine that Jesus' hands are covering your closed eyes. And now I want you to open your eyes. What is the first thing that you see with your brand new healed 
vision. Now this detail isn't in Mark's story, but I can almost guarantee that the very first thing the previously blind man saw with his newly acquired 2020 vision was the face of Jesus, the one who had healed him. You see, this healing, it wasn't just a miracle, it was an invitation to follow. And when I imagine this situation, and I put myself in that blind man's position, I imagine myself not only being healed, but also having my eyes open to the person who could change the rest of my life, not only physically, but completely. Jesus wasn't finished with the blind man, and he won't be finished with us either, not until we see everything clearly, not until the eyes of our hearts are opened and we see him face to face. I want to experience this kind of healing, to have my vision fully restored, again, not physically, but for my whole life. I want us to have our collective vision, Elevation's vision, fully restored. Pre-pandemic, we were engaging creatively with university students. We were launching a marriage course. We were expanding our engagement with refugee families through community ministry. There was a lot of stuff going on, and of course, it had to grind to a halt. But I want us to figure out what is our vision now? Where is God leading us? Where does he want to take us as a church? What new opportunities lie on the other side of, but even right now in the midst of this ongoing pandemic fog? What is the vision that God is calling us to next? Miroslav Volf writes, a compelling vision of flourishing life is not a luxury. It is a basic need for a being who does not and cannot live by bread alone. And so as we sang earlier, Jesus, be my vision, be my path, be my guide. That is my prayer for my own life and for the life of our Elevation community. If God is able to restore clarity to the eyes of the blind man and bring even the driest of bones to life, what is God able to do in your life? What is God able to do in our church? Vision and hope two things we need now more than ever. In just a moment, we're going to dismiss to the neighbors groups that I mentioned earlier. If you're just joining us for the first time, there'll be a link in the comments. This is an opportunity for us to connect with one another in a virtual space after the service. It's a chance to, ca to catch up and what's been going on in the week, but it's also a chance to talk about what I've introduced in this morning's message. Now, before we leave, I want to dismiss with a time of prayer. And specifically, I would like us to pray as a church community for Graham and Rachel Watson. Graham and Rachel are about to head off on a significant adventure, moving their lives to Bolivia and uh, serving God there in South America. We are very excited for them as they head on this journey. So I'd like to begin by praying for them, and then I'll pray for the rest of us as we dismiss. Lord, we're grateful that you give us vision individually and collectively. And this morning we give thanks that you have opened up the eyes of Graham and Rachel and you have put an opportunity in front of them that they have responded to. They are moving their lives to be able to serve people in Bolivia. And God, we wanna pray your blessing on them as they go. Be with them as they travel, give them health, keep them safe and stretch them in their relationships with you. Use them to be light and salt in these new cities where they will be living and working. God, I pray for each one of us that if our bones are, if we feel like a pile of dry bones, that you would bring life to those bones, God. You would raise up a vast army. 
God, if we feel like our sight is just gone, like we can't see through this fog, I pray that you would restore our sight, not partially, but fully. And God, do it not just for us as individuals, but for us as a church. Give us a vision of who you're calling us to be as Elevation. May your spirit go with us, reminding us of your presence with us throughout the week to come. In Christ's name, amen.